so I had a few of Neil Young's guitars, which, you know, just to even say that sentence is mind blowing. Talking Records Podcast, Talking Records Podcast, Talking Records Podcast. We talk about our favorite records, Talking Records Podcast. We're so glad you tuned in. Thank you all for listening. You showed up to the right place. Chad and his friends dive deep and analyze the records we have grown to love. We'll tell you how we found the band, then give you a track by track breakdown of all the songs. So grab your favorite beverage and pull up a seat. Today we'll look at another record in its entirety. Thank you, Mr. Krista Makes. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Jed, and this is Talking Records, a podcast designed to gather up everything we can about the albums we love and put it all in one place. I'm just a huge music fan who loves to know the details, the backstories, and all the components that went into creating albums that I've grown up loving. Be sure to follow Talking Records on social media. We can be found on Instagram at Talking Records Podcast. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and even YouTube. Give us a like or a follow, and we'll try to keep fresh content coming your way daily. You can also visit our website by going to TalkingRecordsPodcast.com. There you will find episodes, merch, and more. You can even drop us an email at TalkingRecords@outlook.com. These are all great ways for us to connect with you over all the great music we enjoy. We would love to get this podcast in front of even more music lovers, and you can help by providing us with a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume podcasts, as every review helps us reach more listeners. Thanks, everyone, and let's continue with the podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined in a moment by Jonas Kleiner, guitarist for Bucko 9. Based out of San Diego, California, Bucko 9 released 28 Teeth on TVT Records in the spring of 1997. That spring, I was completely immersed in ska music, heading into one of the greatest summers I can remember. Between the Warp Tour and all the ska shows that came through my hometown, it was just a great time to be a fan of the genre. Earlier that year, a friend handed me a cassette tape with the original art of the band's previous album, Barfly. That tape was on constant rotation in my car, cycling through a handful of great originals and cover songs by Operation Ivy, The Misfits, The Clash, and The Musical Youth. Crossing punk and ska, the band featured the contrast of clean, crunchy guitars along with big horn lines. When I discovered the band had a new album out, I grabbed it and was super impressed by the tightened-up sound and the memorable and fun songs. It was an immediate favorite of mine. Almost immediately, I forced my band to learn the title track. My brother, who played drums at the time, tried to perfect that opening snare pattern, and my guitarist gave his best effort to play ska upstrokes. And for the first and only time, I put down my guitar and played the trumpet. We thought it was amazing. I'm sure it sounded like a train wreck. In 1997, the planet was swept up in ska mania. Bands were popping up on MTV. Ska songs appeared in movies. And though vocalist John Pepsworth was crooning What Happened to My Radio, it used to be cool, but now it just blows, on the song What Happened to My Radio, our local station and stations across the country were playing ska songs in the regular rotation. Finally, I could turn on our local station and catch the song My Town from this album. Though it was short-lived, it was still extremely exciting to hear music that I liked, music that I wanted to hear being played over the airwaves, reaching the masses. This album is still one of my favorite ska records from that time. In the moment it starts up, I'm transported back to an exciting time in my life, where ska shows happen every weekend, and for the briefest amount of time, it seems like everyone was willing to appreciate great music for a second. Here to take us through 28 Teeth is guitarist Jonas. How's it going, Jonas? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining the podcast. We are going to gather up everything we possibly can about 28 Teeth and put it right here in this hour-long podcast. Awesome. So, Jonas, I want to know, so the band left Tang Records after the release of Barfly. How did you guys connect with TVT Records? Yeah, it's uh, an interesting question because TVT is 
mostly known for um, Nine Inch Nails at the time. And then, right. <laughs> so why would a ska band, you know, go to that label? Um, yeah, I mean, at that point, we'd already been touring for at least three years. Um, and we realized that just to get further in terms of distribution, like better distribution and just keep the momentum of the band, we just needed a, a different label. So um, at yeah. the time, um, we had talked to a bunch of labels, actually. TVT just seemed like the the most honest, straightforward, and most excited to work with us. And um, mm. they were still considered an indie label at the time because they actually did their own distribution. So it just seemed like a win-win. And it seemed like, hey, we're, you know, let's keep this train rolling. And um, this seems like a great opportunity to keep, you know, the Buck 09 on tour with records everywhere. We used to have scenarios where we'd play, um, you know, like for example, I remember we played a show in Boise, Idaho, and this was before TVT. It was like, um, oh, the pie tasters, I believe, were also on the bill. And I remember we went to a record store down the street and they were like, no, we don't have any of your stuff. And we would like uh. sell them CDs and vinyls from our van. We'd be like, here, you know, <laughs> or we would um, yeah. get the, the buyer's number and we would give it to Curtis, who owned Tang, and be like, dude, call this guy. He wants to buy a bunch of our stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we just wanted to keep moving forward without having to take on that additional, um, I mean, that's a tough thing. Like not only are you selling your band because you're on tour playing live. So you're, I mean, we're there to entertain. That's what we love to do. And, but you've got to, you know, we would sell merch at all our shows and then to have to go to the local record stores and (laughs) check in and make sure they're taken care of. It's like, oh man, it's just like a lot to do. (laughs) It's not your job. It's the point of having distribution. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's how, you know, it just seemed like a good fit at the time. And we, we it was a positive thing at, at that point, I, I feel for us. Yeah, sounds like it. You, did you guys have any misgivings, though, that they didn't really have any ska bands or punk bands on the roster? I mean, at the time, it might have been like a weird thought. But at the same time, like the guy who would have he was going to be our, um, you know, our main connection at the label, this guy, Tom Sarig, he was just like, super fan of our band and what we realized is is if you have a champion at the whatever label you're at whether it's a tiny indie label or a huge major label you have to have someone that kind of champions your band through all that process and gets through all the red tapes so he seemed like the guy that could help us do that and um he kind of said you know like yeah we're not like a ska label or a punk rock label (laughs) but you know at the time they had their marketing and distribution down great you know those are things that an artist doesn't want to have to worry about we figured okay well if you can put out all these massive hip-hop records and all you know and deal with the nine inch nails crap and the Marilyn manson whatever happened um <laughs> you can easily deal with buck 09 and seven dust was also on the label at the same time yeah they were taking right. off and we're just like well dude come on now you can you know so it's yeah. never going to be like the perfect situation for a band unless you're like a band like Green Day or something that has a proven track record and then you go to re-sign a deal with a label. So, you know, you have to take a leap of faith no matter where you're at. And at that point in time, sure. it was a good leap of faith. So take me through the writing process. Did you guys work a lot of this material out on tour or did you have some time before heading into the studio to run through these songs? What was the writing process like for this record? It was both actually. Um, yeah. Just so, just thinking about it, because I do remember we made a demo for the label, like, "Hey, here are some of the songs we're going to record." And oh, at, all right. And at that point, um, you know, we just recorded this demo here locally, um, just a quick one day kind of affair live in the studio. So anyway, like we at that point had probably five or six songs. Um, I remember we had Round Kid. We had, um, I believe, we had the beginnings of My Town. Maybe Record Store was one of them. I don't know, but there was Mm. at least five or six. You know, on tour, we would, there's so much downtime. So like, for example, on tour, I was messing around with this idea called, and I called it the Cure Riff. And the Cure Riff (laughs) was basically, that's the intro to my town. And so I used to play that at sound checks all the time, just because it's a fun way to kind of dust the cobwebs off my fingers. And, you know, it was, I I just dug the little, the riff I came up with. And um, so then eventually, you know, Peb's, our singers like, dude, you've got to use that at the beginning of this song that we had been working on, which became My Town. So yeah, it's like a bunch of this stuff would come up 
on the road when you have a few minutes or a couple hours here or there with your guitar or whatever your instrument is to come up with ideas. You know, I remember Albuquerque, we called it Albuquerque at the time because I had written this song, um, just the basics of it, and then I showed it to the guys at a sound check at, uh, I believe it was the launch pad in Albuquerque. It was this little bit. Oh. <laughs> but um, yeah, like nice. once, once we stopped the touring writing sessions and we got everything together, you know, um, we would lock ourselves into a rehearsal studio for 10 to 12 hours a day wow. um, for at least a couple months to just, you know, we put aside all our touring plans or, you know, we basically cleared our schedule. We went in the studio, um, not a recording studio, but uh, rehearsal studios, and we were just rehearsed like mad, wrote all these songs. It was amazing that we were able to do that. We were so disciplined. That's great. We yeah. did all the pre-production, you know, and, and had everything down. So at the end of the day, we had 18 or 19 songs written for 2018, of which I guess 14 made the cut. Yeah. I got to ask, when you are working through music and you have horn players, do they hang out in those early sessions or do you bring them in later once you've got the songs down? When do the when do the horn guys come in? Yeah, I think typically what we would do with maybe a couple exceptions, but typically it would be like myself, um, our drummer, Steve Scott, our bass player at the time, um, original Bucko 09 bass player and um, John Pebsworth, our singer, Pebs. So the four of us would hash out these ideas and, you know, sometimes Scott would write a whole song or I would write a whole song or, you know, Scott would have some ideas or I would have ideas or whatever. And Pebs, of course, you know, wrote wrote the majority of the lyrics to all our songs. So he would he'd be in there scat singing, you know. So then once we had like something solidified in terms of like, hey, this is kind of a cool arrangement um, and we blast through it a few times and it's like, yeah, this is us. It feels right. And then. You know, at that point, the horn players would usually be in the hallway outside the room listening to us just kind of hash out some ideas and what, whatever. And you could hear them um, kind of coming up with, with song ideas on the spot, like horn line ideas. Mm. And, um, you know, the three of those guys are super prolific. I mean, each one of them individually is very talented and they all come from kind of different writing backgrounds. You can hear like a Craig written horn line is going to sound different than a Tony written horn line is sound, going to sound different than a Dan. And it was beautiful because the three of them come together and they come up with these cool lines. And so mm -hmm. they would come in and typically we would play and they would start playing their thing. And they'd be like, okay, cool. Hold on one sec. And they'd go out again in the hall and they like finish it. <laughs> then they come back in and they'd be like, dude, check this out. So we'd play and then the horn line would kick in and then, we would just be laughing hysterically with joy because some of these lines are like, oh my God, I can't believe you came up with that. That's yeah. so awesome. It really elevates the song, yeah. Yeah, so it was like, it was always like such a powerful, just energetic, enthusiastic feel when the horns would come on top of what we had already created. A couple times, I think there were horn lines that had been written, like Dan or Tony or Craig would do stuff at Soundcheck and sometimes you know, that could turn into a horn line and I, like maybe me or Scott would figure out the key of what they're playing in and try and, mm -hmm. um, you know, put something behind it. An example of that on the record would be Peach Fish, that instrumental we did. So the funny thing about that was, to me at least, is when I was a kid, my brother had a cornet. So I learned how to play like maybe three or four notes. And I remember we were just messing around and um, I gave Tony my guitar. I forgot who was playing on bass, but I grabbed Tony's trumpet and I started like just playing these four notes that I knew. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sure you love that too, right? Yeah. Well, he was stoked because he's playing guitar. He's all, dude, keep playing that. Because he came up with this reggae like, just a groove. It was uh, like an E minor, I think. And he was just awesome. going, mm, gank, gank. And then I was like, burr, 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 burr. like something that didn't sound like the yeah. horn line, but Tony's all, dude, that's cool, man. Keep doing that. And then mm. we switched back and I was like, what key is that in? You know, oh, I think it's this chord. And he showed me. And so I was like, okay, cool. And then he's like, and he kind of took 
the rudimentary like you know torah porn thing i was blowing and he like made it <laughs> into something beautiful and i'm like holy shit yeah. i want to make your part beautiful too you know and so i came up with yeah. all these like <laughs> black sabbath sounding riffs you know bah, 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 bah. yeah the you slide <laughs> yeah and, like all this stuff and um yeah became peach fish and so that's an example that's really cool one way we would collaborate and um that's the thing about wow. a band i loved is that and I do love to this day is like, we've all been collaborators. We all split everything equally. Mm -hmm. There's no ego when it comes to like, oh yeah, I need my song, you know, like, um, yeah. like for example, I always joke around with some of my friends when we talk about like, say a Jimi Hendrix album that we all love, like Axis Bold is Love. And then, you know, it's like, oh, well they had to put the one Noel Redding song on there, you know, <laughs> where it's like this total like cheese ball, like um, yeah. 60s yeah baby kind of song you know? <laughs> where it's like you could see Jimi hendrix was probably just like dude really oh man well yeah. that's part of the deal so we didn't have anything like that you know we were always like super collaborative super open-minded never got like ins personally insulted when you know someone's like right. well that's a cool idea but you know so yeah that was always sounds like you guys were all on the same page too which helps <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> To make this record, you worked with Neil King at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California. So how'd you connect with uh, Neil King? That was um, through our label. So that was one of the great things oh, about working with a larger label at that time was, um, you know, we could call people w within our world, you know, to help us produce and whatever. But and we did. We actually at one point talked about producing this record with Tom Wilson, who did the stuff. Oh, with, nice. Yeah. So at that yeah. point, I think he had done that Bouncing Souls record. And obviously, he did the Offspring stuff. And um, so we had talked to him. We talked to, to someone who had worked with um, a lot of the Fat Records bands. I'm forgetting his name now, but he was like one of the quintessential engineers from that time. Ryan Green? Yeah, I believe that's him. And so, yeah, we yeah. talked you know, wow. about working <laughs> with him. And I think you know, we had made some calls out. And then someone at the label was like well neil king who um was the engineer on dookie at that time mm -hmm. i mean he had engineered other stuff too and you know his experience predates that way back dookie was like a big breakthrough moment for him obviously and um somehow you know we um passed him our demo and he was super interested and he came to see us play we'd also talked about the guy who um produced the first, well, not the first, but like Less Than Jake's first record on Capitol. Um, oh, man. Closing Street? Yeah. So um, we talked to that guy. I forgot his name now. but And he was super excited about working with us, too. And also, now that it's all coming back to me, the guy who produced um, that Tragic Kingdom record, um, Don't Wanna, Nothing's Gonna Break My Stride, Nobody's Gonna Hold Me Down, Matt Wilder. He... That was his song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a huge, huge song that way predated, no doubt. But he was working with Disney at the time, and um, he'd obviously worked with No Doubt. So at the end of the day, yeah, we wanted to work with Neil King because he, he came to see us play. He was, like, the most enthusiastic. We just got a really good read from him. We were kind of scared to work with a producer because we're like, well, shit. You know, No <laughs> Doubt had to stop doing anything for, like, two, three years, and they to get the record done, you know? And mm, that guy, yeah. Matt Wilder, I remember um, we showed him um, the last song on our on 28 Teeth, Little Pain Inside. And yeah. he's like, that was one of the demos we made from. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and that one came from Pebsworth had wrote these lyrics. Our singer Pebs wrote these lyrics like when he was in high school, I think, or shortly mm -hmm. thereafter. And then he gave me the lyric, a few lyric sheets. He's all, can you come up with some, some music for this? And so I like wrote this song based, you know, it was all his lyrics, but I wrote it on acoustic and I remember my, my roommate at the time was all, dude, what the hell? Why are you singing about these things? I'm like, it's John's <laughs> lyrics. Fast food. But um, this guy, Matt Wilder, yeah, he's all, yeah, dude, oh, I hear some big rock harmonica on that. And like, you know, at that point, oh, no doubt I'd already sold like 15 million records. So he's just like, yeah, dude, we could do this. And 
We're like, mm, yeah, now his confidence is up. We're no rock harmonica. <laughs> We're just going to go with Neil King because he kind of gets. <laughs> That's funny. And what was it like working at Fantasy as opposed to a place like Double Time? Oh, my God. Like, all I could say is as a, I mean, there's no comparison. Obviously, Double Time is great. Yeah. And it was great for our needs. We recorded a bunch of stuff there. And yeah. Jeff Forrest was rad. And he still is a rad dude. He still has a studio there. The thing about fantasy is if you're a musician and you have any sort of like uh, feel for music history and things that happen, immediately you're going to be like fantasy studios. That's quote unquote, the house that Credence built. And, yeah. you know, cause Credence, I mean, they were a huge breakout artist in the sixties from that part of the country. They weren't from, you know, the, the swamp. They were from Alameda, I believe, <laughs> which is right near Berkeley. So, um, you know, their label fantasy built this incredible studio. And so I have to say like, regardless of the bands that, well, it's all because of a lot of the bands and artists that recorded there, it was just incredible. Like it reminded me of like going to a building that was a time capsule of the sixties and seventies. And they had every tricked out rad piece of equipment that you could have ever got from those times. So like, and the facilities were just insane. Like there was this reverb room. It was just a concrete room that had like a very specific <laughs> angled floor and ceiling. And it was like all these mathematical equations. It was concrete. And I would just go in there with my guitar and play guitar. And it was like the most incredible reverb you could ever imagine. And it's just like what they would do. They would use that in the old days and pipe the uh, tracks out and pipe them into this room and then mic the room and then bring the oh, wow. sounds back in. So that was like an early way. It was like a reverb chamber, like an early old school reverb. That's chamber. amazing. <laughs> yeah. And they had like, you know, all these cats were coming in like, um, Man, I could go on and on. I mean, like, even the security guard, this guy, Charles, I'll always remember him because he was like the most positive, happy guy. And he took us around and showed us the vault, like where um, oh. Saul Zantz stored the two-inch reel-to-reel masters for every everything that came out on Fantasy and all the labels that Fantasy owned, the jazz labels and all that. And, um, you know, so that was awesome. And then we got to meet other bands. I mean... We had run into dance hall crashers at that point on the road, you know, mm -hmm. a few times. And so we kind of knew them, but they were recording um, in fantasy at the same same time we were. So we got to meet them, hang out with them and hear the beginnings of, I think it was Honey, I'm Homely, that record. Yeah. And so that was awesome, you know, to just meet people like that. I mean, shit, like talk about starstruck so like we had played with green day at that point several times we were lucky because when they were like a real underground band they would come to san diego and say hey you tell the club owner yeah we'd like buck 09 to play with us or unwritten law or just these local bands so we were one of those lucky um, bands that played with them in the early days and i remember being in the parking lot at fantasy and i was taking a break or something just sitting out there and um then Trey Cool comes driving up, and at the t I always remember these details, but like at the time he was driving like a VW Jetta or something, and he comes <laughs> cruising up and he's listening to um, this Johnny Cash album, I think it was called Unchained, like the second one that they put out on the Deaf American label. And he was just rocking out, and he like pulls up and rolls down his window, and he's all, Dude, you gotta check this out. This is like the new Johnny <laughs> Cash, man. And I was like, just tripping out because I had met him before and I didn't know if he remembered me or not, but he was talking to me like I'd known him for years. And I was like, yeah, yeah dude, that's awesome. You know, thinking, fuck, you're Trey Cool, man, rad. And yeah. at the same time, I saw um, this old van pull into the parking lot and now cruises this guy. And all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, that's Billy Joe from Green Day. And he's opening the back of this old tour van and pulling out like a Marshall 50 watt head and they him and trey were going in to collaborate with exine from x i think they're doing oh. some kind of collaboration album at the time i don't remember exactly what it was but i was aware that they were doing something there so it was just amazing man and then like some of these other studio cats that are not in the scar punk worlds you know we would run into them like they're like r&b there's like this one r&b guitarist that would come in and um i would listen to him play Sometimes just out in the hallway, you could kind of hear like just some of the sounds coming from the control rooms. And then afterwards it walked through the halls and I'd be like, dude, that was incredible, you know? And so yeah, it was, wow. it was such a unique, 
thing, man. All I can say is as a guitar player in a band, obviously once you get in a band, that's like the dream. But then to be able to record in a place like Fantasy is just beyond anything I could have imagined. I mean... With all that going on, you managed to make a record there too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Were you like in just awe? I mean, I don't, I don't know what it's like to record in a place like that. I, I can imagine there's probably a period of time where you're in awe, but then you kind of get over it and you're like, all right, I got to get to work. Exactly. Yeah. It's where we we're going to work for a few months and um, just getting a, a pattern where it was like, we would start around noon or 11 at, or noon and just go for until midnight. Obviously, the tracking of the record is a different a different process than like doing a, a show or a live album or something like that. Yeah, we would work. We worked hard and we were stoked. And man, I swear, some of these, just the memories of some of those control rooms and studios, it's just unreal. Like in some of the techniques the engineer used, Neil King, were like these old school things like um, Peachfish, for example, he's all, dude, we have so many, so many outboard delays and compressors and all this stuff. I want to do a dub kind of approach for Peachfish. And we're like, yeah, hell yeah. And so Neil King, you know, did all these dubs like in real time with all these old outboard, all this old outboard equipment. And I was just kind of watching like with my jaw drop going like, whoa. That, so that's how the cats, you know, make these old school dub reggae records. And um, somehow, you know, Neil had done a lot of stuff. I mean, he engineered Dookie and Jawbreaker, I believe. But before that, he'd done stuff like from the Elvis Costello era and um, some British artists. I believe he had done work with Elvis Costello, but he'd also done work with Joe Jackson on The Man which was might have been part of the reason why we cover that song on the record yeah I'm just ask as, you about that because he yeah because he brought it up i remember him saying would you like to, you should do a cover and i'm thinking it should be on the man but yeah man just the whole process it was like if that was my only experience recording a record, I would remember it for the rest of my days. I mean, it was phenomenal. And so going to the recording setup, did you guys play live off the floor or did you record scratch tracks and overdub? How did that, how'd that work out? It was mostly, um, it was a lot of overdubs for sure. Mm -hmm. Like the, the approach we took was, um, you know, getting in there, getting sounds, which is typical for any recording experience. Getting the drums mic'd and drum sounds was obviously paramount. And then, you know, so it took a few days before we had everything set up uh, and we're getting the sounds we wanted. And so what we would do is Scott, our original bass player, and myself and Steve and Pebs would um, set up Steve you know, we were trying to get the best takes possible and it all starts with drums and those types of approaches. So the first time ever, um, our engineer is encouraging Steve to play the click track and um, mm. Steve wrote, totally rose to the occasion and like knocked it out of the park. But it was in nice. interesting because Neil, you know, we're using an analog click track. So what Neil would do is while we were recording these takes, and, um, you know, maybe some of what Scott did or maybe uh, some of what I did might have been kept for, you know, a track. But really, it was all about the drums. So, like, he would follow mm -hmm. Steve and um, he would, like, increase the click by maybe one or two notches if Steve was speeding up. But if he sped up too much, he would be like, no, yeah. you've got to do it again. So right. it was interesting. <laughs> and Steve it was so rad. I mean, I have a picture um of his snare and he wrote on his snare drum like in huge cap capital letters on his uh in sharpie like fucking relax and then like <laughs> and then recording is fun and like all these smiley faces yeah it's like take a breath <laughs> you know and so he got through it and then you know we all did our stuff but it was all separate tracking um i believe the horns might have tracked at the same time but they would have been in each one in their own um kind of sound booth which you know was in this huge recording studio and had these baffles you know these soundproof baffling that probably would go like eight feet high or something and um, i remember pebs saying his vocals on the same mic that billy joe used to do all the dookie vocals 
awesome. <laughs> so there was kind of some of that fanboy stuff where like, dude, you know, yeah. Neil was the engineer and he knows exactly how he recorded Dookie. So let's, if we can like pull some of those mics or some of those sounds, then by all means. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was in, kind of an incredible scenario um, just to be able to have access to all that stuff. And so your guitar tracks, did you get to use any of that vintage uh, fantasy gear or? Oh, for sure. Using your own stuff. That yeah. was part of the <laughs> thing that was really unique for me, again, um, was as a guitarist, you know, if you get the opportunity to be thrown in, into or like parachute into like a scenario where you're in this classic recording studio and then the producer, Neil happened to have all these connections, right? So like he had a couple different resources to where he could we could rent gear from like hey how'd you like to play neil young's gretch and i'm wow. like you're <laughs> kidding right he's all no actually neil young he rents out because he has hundreds of guitars so he rents out what he's not using so i had a few of neil young's guitars which you know just to even say that sentence is mind-blowing <laughs> yeah. so i used um one of his i have had my own les paul um standard um i used a neil young les paul custom i used a neil young les paul jr and a, a neil young gretch hollow body wow which years later i went and saw him play i was lucky enough to get to see him play someone got me a ticket and i was watching him play and all of a sudden he steps on stage with the exact fucking guitar that i used on um well peach fish you know the part that goes where i'm playing and like the yeah, yeah. so that was all on his gratch wow <laughs> see the uh what what happened to my radio was was on his gratch um tracked on his gratch so i got to use that kind of stuff and then i got to use a bunch of amps that came from another place uh, that Neil had a connection to. And um, plus, you know, I used my own Marshall. I mean, I had at the, in those days, I was playing a JCM 900, nothing special, but you know, for whatever reason, I liked the sound of that amp. I lucked out and got something that was cool. And um, that's great. Yeah. So yeah, man, it was a dream come true. That's all I could say at the time. Like <laughs> just that environment. That's so cool, man. Yeah. I'm surprised you guys didn't put in the liner notes played on Neil Young guitars. <laughs> yeah. You know, something I, I don't, yeah, I mean, we should have if we, yeah, totally. <laughs> a little bragging, that's all right. So Jonas, I want to dig into these tracks a little bit. The title track, 28 Teeth, was produced and mixed by David Kirschenbaum at Rumbo Recorders. You ever been so tired that your spirit starts to sigh And you're working every day just to make it Why, uh, why track that separately? Was it supposed to be a single or something? Yeah, so another great question. And it was one of the quirks of working with like a larger label that they wanted to try stuff with us. Because like up yeah. to that point, you know, we'd released Key of Bree and Barfly and like Water in My Head. And so these were albums that we cranked out at double time, on limited budgets, limited time, made the best usage of our scenarios and tried not to spend a lot of money. So yeah, what happened was, so the label being, you know, we're the first ska band, they were going to put a record out and they were just like, probably the A&R guy was being fed information like through his ear. And he got the idea that, hey, well, the guy who produced Tracy Chapman, huge record and also produced um, Joe Jackson and like, he wants to work with you now. And we're just like, really? We just did all this stuff with Neil King. Why would we do that? And um, I remember he's just like, just do it for us. Please just work with Kershaw Like for whatever reason, we're not sure if what you did with Neil is like perfect for what we want. Oh, and so yeah. just record a few songs with, with Kershaw And so, um, you know, we just looked at it as a positive instead of a negative. Cause this is a guy who, you know, at the time was pretty well known and he had done some legitimate stuff and he had a cool studio way uh, up in orchid california i believe it was like north of um or above santa barbara so yeah we drove out there we recorded i think we tracked three songs with him we tracked uh jennifer's cold 28 teeth and oh i'm the man 
we did this, you know, and it was, it was an interesting experience. And I remember he, yeah, I think 2018 might've been one of the songs they were considering for a single or something. So mm-hmm. we rewrote and rearranged it on the spot. Um, we did a day of pre-production. He, I guess, had access to this old restaurant in Orchid. So we go there and we're doing pre-production. And I remember 2018, the version that we released on, a, you know, the Pass the Dutch EP, we call the Hot mm-hmm. Party Mix, but that was actually the yeah. original version of that song that we used uh-huh. to play live. So that was one of the six songs we demoed early in the day. So we had to have that song written for a while. And um, all those quirky changes in the Hot Party Mix were actually like, that was us kind of pushing the envelope in our own minds and being more of a progressive ska band, I guess. Or I don't even know. We wouldn't even have put a title on it other than, hey, this is kind of cool. It's experimental. To us, it's different than what we've done. So I think the label heard that and they're like, you know, I don't know. um, Why don't we try and see if we could boil that song down to its bare bones? And so we, you know, on the spot, we said, okay, we'll, we'll trim this, we'll add this chord instead of that chord. And he was encouraging us and we're like, fuck it, let's try it. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, we got these masters back from Kirschenbaum and um, we A-beat them to s- the stuff we did with Neil. And I, and we're just like, yeah, the Neil stuff at Fantasy is way warmer. But something about that 2018th version was kind of cool because to me has less bottom end and also maybe a a little less like top end too. There's something about it where it, sit, it sits in the mix pretty good. And we got like a good, um, you know, feel on the, on the reggae, just the, the reggae parts of it. So I think we decided to keep it on that basis. So yeah, I don't even know where the masters are for the David Kirschenbaum, Jennifer's Cold, and then David Kirschenbaum on the man. But oh, really? I don't wow. even know. Like they're probably in the <laughs> fantasy vault somewhere. <laughs> Or wherever TBT keeps their masters or shit, I don't know. It's weird because I was going through my garage a while ago because we're moving, and I ended up having some of the real-to-real masters from some of our recordings, and I don't understand why. Like, I have two of the two-inch real-to-real masters from our libido record sitting in my garage. I've got the the two-inch real-to-real master for songs in the key of Bree. And I'm just like, whoa, why do I have this stuff? But maybe there's a reason. And I'm so, you know, I'm just holding on to it until maybe, you know, 20, 35 years goes by and we get our rights back to all those records and then we can (laughs) repress them or something. Repress them, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. There has to be an interesting story behind Steve was dead. So is there anything there? Yeah, (laughs) it's a real, it's a true story. Really? Um, Wow, that's scary. I can't remember if it happened, you know, when exactly it happened, but um, it basically what happened was, yeah, read the lyrics of the stories. That's exactly what happened um, for Mm -hmm. whatever reason. You know, at the time we were, people were interested in our music and interested in our band at that point in the, like was 96 and um, we would sell out local clubs. And so there's a lot of people that, you know, sometimes people spread rumors for stupid reasons. And there was someone, Mm. we were at a show at Soma not playing, but hanging out. Steve said he was going to meet us there and he didn't. And we're like, Oh, whatever. He just, he's out with his girlfriend or whatever and skateboarding or something. Who knows? And so all of a sudden someone's like, Hey, did you hear so-and-so? And this was before text messages, you know, oh, yeah. cell phone. So someone, a friend of a friend was like, oh my God, I heard Steve died in a car accident. I'm so sorry. You guys like came up to, to me and um, someone else who was there. It might've been Dan or John and Dan. I can't remember. And we're just like, what, what the fuck mm. are you talking about? And right. we we're freaking <laughs> out like, dude, you know, and we we're frantically calling Steve. He wouldn't answer because he was out for the night doing something. And, you know, and the next day he realized like, holy shit, someone started a rumor and it just went Richter, it went, you know, wildfire. And um, yeah. so he called us a day later or whenever it was, he was like, dudes, I'm alive. Don't. <laughs> and so Pebs was like, 
oh, thank God. And then, yeah, yeah, you just wrote that song. And it was just like, yeah, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> that's so scary. My soul is sound when I'm in my hometown, yeah. No place I'd rather be. My town, my street. Give me peace of mind that can't be beat, yeah. My town, my street. Give me peace of mind that can't be beat. So... My Town ended up being the single. So what uh, what brought on that being the choice for you? It didn't really, it wasn't even our choice, actually. It was, um, mm-hmm. I know the label had been considering it as a single. The luckiest thing in the world. Again, San Diego has always been just so wonderful to our bands. I mean, the support in this community has been incredible, especially in those days. So 91X had already played a few of our songs in regular, like heavy rotation on 91X, which at the time was just like, really? You know, like a um, few too many off of Hebrew, they play the crap out of it. And we're like, dude, I don't understand what's going on here, but thank That's you, great. 91X. And then <laughs> they played Water in My Head off of, you know, that the um, Water in My Head EP and Barfly, and they played the crap mm-hmm. out of it. And we're just like, whoa two singles that 91X has like embraced us with. And then I can't remember, but one of us, it might've even been like manager or someone gave the, uh, you know, the pre-release. Oh, you know what it was is before we released that record, we put out a three song cassette with three of those songs and said, here's, it's coming out soon, you know, and we called mm, it like, like three, a sampler. three teeth. And so I think 91X, heard my town and they're like can we get a better version of this we want to play it and so we're like sure man and we gave it to them and they started playing the crap out of it the um song you know the album had already been released at that time i think by the time they started um playing it um you know it happened during that period between the demo and um or the three teeth and the 28 teeth official release so we're on tour from the time the album came out in april for pretty much a year two years i don't know we would come home for sporadic periods of time and then leave and so we heard all this dude 91x is playing my town my x is playing my town and they had enough clout at that time to where other stations started to take notice and then all of a sudden you had like other stations in california playing my town and all of a sudden tvt our label was like well it's a single we didn't even yeah so we're gonna <laughs> go champion that single or whatever the terminology is and so yeah, um, pay attention yeah so yeah i mean i think it, it was mostly i mean thanks to mike halloran and also hillary from 91x i mean those two and obviously brian shock and like all the people that are at that that station helped i mean that was incredible for us to like have yeah. that like wow i mean and it wasn't just our band like uh, they played a lot of unwritten law they played sprung monkey you know i think get them out of here mm-hmm. was another scenario where um sprung monkey their singles started in San Diego with 91X. So it's like, you know, it was amazing. And um, so, yeah, it started to spread. And then all of a sudden, K-Rock was playing it in regular rotation. And then K-Rock New York was playing it in regular rotation. And then all of a sudden, like every 91X in the United States was playing it in like regular rotation. And we're just like, what the fuck? Like, this is insane. (laughs) But cool, you know? And um, because if we would have had to pick you know, if we would have picked the single, we would have probably picked Jennifer's Cold or Round Kid. But, uh, you know, and Jennifer's Cold, um, 91X ended up playing in, in heavy rotation as well. On the freeway, all the cars have stopped because the big news has dropped. All the phones are ringing. It's got all the neighbors singing. Police chief is calling the detectives. Navy SEALs are being... At that wow. point, I think the label's like, well, we want to make our own decisions on soon. <laughs> and we're like, oh. dude, you've already no, got No, you got to follow what the, yeah. yeah. you've already got another Follow the trends. Start. And even wow. yeah, the following record where we um, put out the Pass the Duchy EP, mm-hmm. we re-recorded Pass the Duchy and put outtakes from 2018. Well, some um, station in Phoenix was playing uh, Pass the Duchy and we're like, dude, you know, not, we're like, You've already got, again, it was like another one of those scenarios where the stations were picking the singles and I don't know what it was about TVT. They, our A&R guy had probably left and it was probably just like disconnect and they were not taking the advice of some of these local radio programmers. But, um, right. you know, back in those days, it was like payola and all this shit. So it's like everyone had an ego about 
oh, well, we've got to release records and do it in this way. And it's like, if you're working mm -hmm. with a label, you have to, you have to let them do their thing because that's right. why they exist. Yeah. And so it, that was really out of our department. All the only thing we did to support our singles, including my talent was just play radio festivals for the station. Like they would yeah. just fly us to some random place like in Houston. And I remember we're on the bill <laughs> with all these random bands that were on the radio at the time, you know, like, Sugar Ray and um, what's that <laughs> band um, from Australia? Remember they had this huge hit. It was like something about the kitchen. Silverchair, yeah, something about the yeah. kitchen sink. Like, um, <laughs> and I remember we were playing this radio show in um, oh, brother in Houston, and um, feeling out of my element because Silverchair was up next, and then after that, like um, either Third Eye Blind or. Um, that band with Rob Thomas, I forgot what they're called now, but they had those three. Oh, Matchbox 20. Yeah. So one of those bands was going to be the headliner and we're just like, dude, really? Like, this is so trippy. And yeah. <laughs> so I remember looking over and seeing the singer of Silverchair just watching our set and like, I, he caught my eye and I caught his and I recognized him just from their video or something. And he's just all, what's up, dude? Like, Rob, yeah. Fucking, yeah. And he was banging his head. I'm like, dude, this is fucking crazy. This is so weird. Yeah. Because that kid wouldn't, come see us ordinarily you know <laughs> like what no it's a small club and it's so funny because meanwhile you guys have a song called like you know the radio sucks or what's wrong with the radio and yeah some people were like again spreading rumors like steve was dead i remember some people like, oh, yeah, you guys wrote that. At the time, there was um, 91X had a competitor locally. I think it was 92.5. I forgot what the what the actual um, station name was. But that line that and Scott, our original bass player, wrote this song is kind of like a protest against like that kind of stuff. So like the cutting edge for me, like, yeah, y'all take the cutting edge and slip my wrist. It was like. You know, all the alternative stations started calling themselves the cutting edge. And it was kind of like, you know, Scott was like writing from a perspective of like, you know, an angry Elvis Costello, like who wrote some of the best songs ever. Right. So like, um, yeah. and so like people were starting to say, oh yeah, that's just, you're talking shit about 91X, like biting the hand that feeds. And we're just like, dude, mm. nothing of the sort. In fact, 90 or the, the station that was 91X's competitor at the time, that's why I brought it up 92.5, was playing that song as kind of like a protest oh, against really? 91X. Or like, <laughs> we're not gonna play my town, but we'll play what happened to my radio to kind of like, and it's just like really- To be ironic. Yeah, but so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was kind of the deal. Like, um, we appreciated any support we got. It was just, yeah. you have to understand when you're writing songs, um, you don't write songs for commercial purposes when you're a ska band. You write them from your own perspective. And at that point, after touring for several years and trying to dial into local radio stations in Cleveland, Ohio, or Little Rock, Arkansas, and you hear the same songs on the these stations that are like, we're the cutting edge of alternative. <laughs> Scott, you know, and all of us were just like bored and like, because you have a lot of time when you're traveling between towns and it's like he probably was like dude if i hear another reference to the cutting edge i'm gonna slip my wrist and we're probably just like dude that's like the ultimate lyric like go with yeah. that you know and so he wrote this song and we're just like it's fucking awesome you know that's great so going back to my town for just a moment the song obviously saw radio airplay all over it even reached my small little town in massachusetts I remember, you know, awesome. Scott was on the, the upswing in 1997. Yeah. Hearing that song on my local radio was just so amazing. And the song turned up, I think, on Beverly Hills 90210 at some point. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah. I mean, it just took off. We're lucky. We're so, so lucky. Like, I never, like, that's again one of the things. It's like you record a record at Fantasy with all this incredible dream scenario equipment and venue quote unquote you know fantasy it's just mm -hmm. incredible and then you have the luck to have a breakout single it's like holy shit we we're it was an incredible time for us i mean just getting just being in these scenarios finding ourselves in these scenarios where we weren't necessarily meant to be because we're an underground touring band you know we weren't the boss tones 
um, by any means. And um, so it was like, wow, for us to get a breakthrough when the Boss Tones already had that massive single on the radio and this radio still played us and Real Big yeah. Fish and, you know, Less Than Jake, it was like, whoa, this is insane. Like, what is happening here? And we were just grateful that we could be a part of that little blip in time. So what is the significance of the title 28 Teeth? Oh, that's another touring thing where, um, and if you read the lyrics, you know, do you ever get so bored you count your right. teeth? So that's how bored we were on tour. I mean, when you have like a <laughs> nine hour drive between say Indi Indianapolis and you're the next show you have to play is um, Philadelphia. So you're driving like mm. in a stinky ass van and um, you're bored off your, you're bored because at the time you, there's no such thing as an iPhone or even an iPod. All we had was uh, this little, you know, this old school TV set that we bolted into our van with like an old school, <laughs> like Nintendo or something. Plug it into the cigarette lighter. <laughs> yeah. And so nice. we, yeah, we like Dan and Scott were like the, they were totally adept at like electrical stuff. So they built out the interior of our van and they had this little entertainment center they built with an inverter to where we could run the, um, the you know the the VCR and our TV and and our our Nintendo games, but you still are bored off your ass. So Pebs yeah. was like, "Check it out! I was so bored, I counted all my teeth, and I have twenty eight <laughs> teeth." And we're just like, "Holy shit! I'm gonna count mine!" And then I counted mine, I'm like I've got twenty eight too. And then a few of us were like, "Cause you know we didn't know how." I mean, that sounds idiotic, but how many of us are? It's born? Like you could Google it back then. Yeah, you can't. There was no Google, so then. <laughs> Pebs basically wrote the lyrics from the perspective of we're on tour, we're eating crappy burritos and getting sick, we're counting all our teeth. Yeah. All that is like <laughs> true. Like you could pull any lyric from that song and I could tell you an anecdote about that lyric because wow. it's essentially boredom. <laughs> yeah. Who did the sketches for the uh, CD or for the album art? Oh, that guy was, his name is Ron Cameron. He's a, uh, mm -hmm. an artist um, heavily involved in the skateboard industry. And I think he was, uh, he's done a lot of work for, um, I don't even remember some of the, I mean, Steve, it was a connection through Steve, our drummer. Um, I mean, we we're all skateboarders, but Steve and Craig specifically were like really locked, you know, locked into that uh, scene. And they knew a lot more people. And Ron was just someone who had done all the, uh, my God, those guys are going to say, you're such an idiot forgetting for forgetting. I think it was like Toy Machine or one of the early um, skate like success stories of the DIY. So he was part of that. And um, he lived in somewhere near the Bay Area where we were recording. And then Steve was like, dude, we should get Ron Cameron. And because he'd already done all these similar characters for skateboard illustrations and stuff. So he did all these illustrations for us and then came up with the textures we're just like whoa this is cool it's like totally different approach and it's than we would have thought of and it's so cool to like i don't know we just fell in love with it So the album comes out and you guys end up hitting the road with Primus. <laughs> were Primus fans welcoming or were they impatient for Les Claypool to start swinging on his bass? I mean, that is a, yeah. Okay, so the movie Spinal Tap, like sometimes <laughs> I have friends or just even like say someone I know through the, the work world, like, you know, I'm not, I have to have a job for a living. So I build websites and people who might know him in a band think oh i'm gonna crack spinal tap jokes around jonas because he'll get yeah. it well <laughs> to me that is a fucking nightmare movie i can't even walk i mean obviously it's hilarious and i laugh hysterically but that is mm -hmm. those every single scenario that's happened in that movie has happened to me and the guys in our band and probably you and any touring musician so like when people start making spinal tap jokes like oh 
you're going to kick my ass because I did, I fucked up on the marketing like in store. Well, that's a real scenario that happens to like lots of bands or even the Blues Brothers cliche. I love the Blues Brothers, one of my favorite movies of all time. But when people come up to me and they're all, dude, are you getting the band back together? I just feel like going, fuck you, dude. Like that is so fucking lame. Like you're so stupid. Why would you say that to me? But, you know, it is kind of funny. Maybe I'm just like too thin skinned or something. But it just brings up like memories of people going, oh, I heard Bucko Nine broke up. You know, and it's just like, dude, no. Uh... Yeah, I mean, that scenario... So when the record was released, it was, I remember it was tax day of 1997, April 15th. And we were in Canada playing a show. We were on tour with Face to Face. And that was like a very cold, it was a great tour, but we were freezing the whole time because it was a Canadian Mm. winter. And after that, we toured through the summer with like Mephiscopheles um, up and down the coast. And we toured with probably like, played shows with like bands like mustard plug and less than jake and the suicide machines and just so by the time we got um into fall and we we're continuing to tour we got a message that Les claypool had personally wanted us to support primus and so as fans of you know as fans of primus we're just like holy shit yeah, yeah let's but do it. <laughs> you know some a couple of the guys like Tony um, and Dan were just like, dudes, I don't know if this is like, this might be kind of fucked up situation. And so, because right. originally they wanted us to open up the show and it was going to be um, the Deftones supporting Primus. And then, so it would have been Bucko Nine, the Deftones and Primus. So Deftones wow. somehow bowed out of that tour um, for whatever reasons, you know, happens all the time. And so we all of a sudden, Les was like, dude, please be my supporting band. I love my town. I love you guys. And so of course, you know, we said yes, knowing that it might be weird. Well, (laughs) it was beyond weird. Like (laughs) we at every single show, except maybe two, the audience like pelted us with shit, Uh, like told us, fuck you, get out. You suck. It was insane. And then the, the, the few people that bought tickets to Primus just to see us, it was so sad. We felt sorry for him because we're like, oh, you guys are supporting our band, you know, and you're in the front and you're seeing this and the vibe, obviously. It, there's so many things that happened on that tour, which I could go down in endless rabbit holes. Um, but yeah, suffice it to say, although Les Claypool and Primus are total awesome sweethearts and they're great people, just phenomenal individuals that would answer any of our questions, talk to us, hang out with us, you know, we're super casual with us, but it's like the reality of it is they're fans. I mean, every band, whether you realize it or not, you're kind of like your fans are kind of like part of the perception people have of your band sometimes. And um, Primus fans are pretty gnarly and they don't like any bands playing with Primus. So, you know, mm. he told us, he's like, dudes, I'm so sorry. You know, after the first few shows, he's like, please stick stick with me i mean i know you're not having the best time and people are throwing shit at you but please <laughs> for me if you would i would really appreciate it if you just kept going and so we yeah. did. did you guys finish the tour yeah yeah, yeah we did and um <laughs> it was a doozy but we played some incredible venues that we'd never get to play yeah you yeah. know like so like for example the um i think it's roseland in new york city like this huge classic like venue and um mm-hmm. that was one of the shows we had a decent show like people in new york showed up for buck 09 as well and um but you know we played in texas we were playing i remember in dallas like some huge room it was like you know twenty thousand people could fit in this venue and it was like we didn't have much money so we couldn't tip the lighting guy for primus the 50 dollars that night so what he did <laughs> to really thank us for not tipping him was he turned on all the white bright lights with no you know filters and pointed them at us so we couldn't see shit and we're just like on stage just being like harassed by texans there to see primus i have nothing against texans or dallas i love texas and we've had great shows in dallas but primus fans in dallas are pretty gnarly and they let us know they weren't maybe it's a good thing you couldn't see them yeah they weren't (laughs) overly pleased with what we were doing like like wasting their time they were all like they were okay with um the first band 
which was another band that went on to have success. Um, oh my God, it was a singer of, um, oh my God, he calls himself Spider. His older brother is um, White Zombie. So Rob Zombie's oh. younger brother, Spider, yeah. was in this band. Oh my God, why am I forgetting their name? But they became pretty popular way after. And so they're on tour with us and you know, the Primus people were like kind of okay with them because they were kind of this weird industrial metal style band yeah. and you had Spider. closer to Primus, yeah. Yeah, and you had their singer Spider is just like, you know, kind of a, a trippy character like Rob Zombie. So people were fascinated with him. And then you get this seven piece ska punk band. <laughs> and at that point, the Primus fans were like, okay, this is the, you know, if we're the schoolyard the bully, hell is this? this is the kid that we're going to bully. And so it was just uh. like, Holy shit. Yeah, but they got to um, take out their impatience on somebody. Yeah, but um, oh man, I'm sorry. <laughs> but dude, I have no misgivings. I've no, I would never do that again. Kind of scenario. Like <laughs> I would do that again to this day, and I would experience what it's like to be pelted by hundreds of dollars and nickels and quarters being thrown at you. Jeez. Like someone <laughs> threw a quarter at at Pebs, and he has the mic, and so he's all, oh. That was cool, man, because he grabbed the quarter after it fell. He's all, check it out. I'm rich. Everyone, start <laughs> throwing coins at us. We need money. So all of a sudden, right. and I'm playing You're doing guitar, us a favor. keep in mind. So I can't like put my hands up for protection, and I'm oh, getting pelted yeah. by coins. Oh. And to this day, I can show you the guitar has like divots in it from that show. <laughs> and I, I remember at one point between songs, I held up my arms. I'm like, Fuck it. Let's see what happens. And I was just getting pelted and my guitar is going bang, bang, bang. Yeah. I'm like, Syracuse, New York. Fuck yeah. You know, and it's just like, <laughs> oh my God, this is insane. That's incredible. But wow. you have to experience some of that. I mean, if you're put in that scenario, you can't complain. You just, right. Because musicians, you're as a professional, right? Quote unquote, you're not supposed to complain. You're just man up and deal with the scenario yeah. and move on. Be thankful and, for the opportunity. Yeah, and so that's what we wow. did. And I remember Dan and Tony and Craig, since they weren't playing horn lines continuously through every song, they would stop and they would rake up all this change. And I remember at the end of the <laughs> show, they're all, dude, we have like 200. Rolling quarters behind stage. Yeah, we have like 200, over $200 in change. And wow. meanwhile, I was kind of like bummed at that. And I'm like, I was like, fuck you. I just got pelted by $200 in change. And, but after I calmed down, I'm like... got dents in my forehead. Yeah, I'm like, you know, it's kind of cool, actually. Because Primus fans were true to us, and they showed us how gnarly they are. And they showed us why Primus mm. is a force to be reckoned with. Dude, yeah. their fans are so diehard. It's incredible. Like, I was yeah. in awe yeah, of it. I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, 10,000 plus people are fucking going off. Like primus holy shit you're incredible yeah wow <laughs> don't forget their pre-band chant is primus sucks primus sucks so. totally <laughs> totally yeah it, these are gnarly folks yeah workaholic i would it be heard you working 11 days a week i used to know just where you're coming from i used to know but with that i'm done got a job at a record store three days a week and no more than so what's in the future for, for Buck09? What are you guys up to? Oh, well, we're still very active as much as we can be. You know, we haven't played a show since October 2019. So we have a show booked, a couple of shows booked in September, you know, coming back online. We're playing um, here actually at a little bar in San Diego. We're playing Soda mm -hmm. Bar. And the next day we're flying to Virginia. We're playing Supernova Skullfest. So um really looking forward to both of those. It's going to be amazing, especially to be able to play with Hepcat, Mustard Plug, and, yeah, wow. you know, the Pie Tasters and Slackers. Like, it's a dream mm -hmm. come true if you're in a ska band. You get to reconnect with all these bands. So, um, and then, you know, in January, we're going to branch out and do some stuff. So we'll announce that probably uh, in fall, like what specifically we're doing. We've recorded... We've written and recorded like 24 new songs, oh, wow. brand new. Um, the last record we've released in 2019, Fundamental. Yeah, so, right before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, so like now we, during the pandemic, we were just like, oh my God, like what the fuck do we do? And we were decided, yeah. let's just write. Let's just, and we figured out a way to like each one of us get set up. Um, and all seven of us have setups to where we can record demos, write and record demos and share them. And, I mean, in addition to Tony being an incredible 
human and um, musician is also incredible um, engineer producer. So he's become our mm. producer. So we're going to be releasing some stuff for sure. 2022, absolutely. There's going to be a, some stuff that we've done that we're going to um, release and we're super excited, man. And we're going to continue playing shows, you know? So like 2022, like again, starting in January, do some shows and hopefully that spins into more and more stuff. Excellent, man. Well, I just, I really want to thank you for coming on Talking Records to talk about 28 Teeth. It's been a blast diving into this record. I loved hearing all the stories about fantasy and, oh, and stuff like that. So really appreciate you making time for me. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate you. Uh, and I'm honored that you're like so stoked you wanted to talk about that stuff. Um, so thank Absolutely. you. All right, man. Right thank on, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cool. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right, I would just like to thank Jonas for hanging out with me today. I'd like to thank my man Craig for all the things that he does behind the scenes for Talking Records. I'd like to thank Krista Makes from Less Than Jake for the theme music. And I'd like to send a huge thank you to all of you for tuning in to Talking Records. It's a blast to dive into these fantastic records, chat about the songs, and try to gather up all the information we can into one neat little podcast. Check us out on the socials, say hello, suggest albums, tell us how you got into Bucko 9. All right, everybody, take care.